I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. In the gardening world, we often find ourselves getting excited by the new plants being bred and brought to market. As part of my day job, I edit a fantastic new plants blog by Graham Rice on the RHS website. And he's recently been writing about things like a colorful new aloe safari series, which give you amazing red hot poker flowers for months on end. New variegated forsythias with dramatic contrasting leaf edges and some really exciting recently bred alternative to box that won't get blight or caterpillars. But amongst all the fresh things to lust over at the garden centre, it's important to remember that plant life first began colonising land as far back as 500 million years ago, well before humans, plant trials, garden centres or scientific intervention ever existed. So, in this episode, we're going to be looking back at some of the oldest plant types still around, in what you could call a bit of an ancient plant special. Botanist Dr Chris Thorogood will be explaining how these plants changed our planet forever. Self-professed fern geek and collector James Lawrence will be sharing his thoughts on why dinosaur-era greenery is still perfect for the modern garden. And, in a slightly different take on ancient, Sarah Gerard-Jones, aka The Plant Rescuer, will be talking about how to breathe new life into old, neglected and even discarded houseplants. Welcome to Gardening with the RHS, with me, Gareth Richards. I've always had a fascination with plants that have an ancient feel. I find it really interesting that things like ferns and horsetails reproduce from spores like fungi do, rather than seeds like most other plants. The year before last I wrote a book about weeds, and the most fascinating weed out of all 50 was the horsetail, which I know sounds strange because it's the bane of many allotment gardeners' life. But just looking at what the continued existence of a plant like horsetail represents, it's part of a family that evolved literally hundreds of millions of years ago. So horsetails have seen asteroids impacts, they've seen dinosaurs come and go, and they're still here. And I find that just so inspiring. And someone else who's really passionate about celebrating ancient plants is the Deputy Director and Head of Science at the University of Oxford Botanic Garden and Arboretum, Dr Chris Thorogood. In 2021, Dr Chris wrote a book called When Plants Took Over the Planet, The Amazing Story of Plant Evolution. Let's head back in time. About 500 million years ago, something appeared in a pond, and it may not have looked like much, but it would change our planet forever. So a tiny plant, a type of green alga called a carophyte, which looks a lot like pondweed that you might have in your garden pond, 
This was the great, great, great grandparent of all the incredible plants that we see alive today. But actually, you don't need to go back in time or even trek to a tropical rainforest or your garden ponds to see fascinating plants. They're growing all around us. Just about every park you visit will contain living fossils in the form of conifers, for example. A stroll down your street can be a glimpse into the Permian era. Uh, ginkgos are often planted on roadsides, and these trees date back 270 million years. Also, remember to look down as well as up, because at your feet you'll find miniature forests of mosses and liverworts, relatives of the very first plants to have left the water and conquered the land 470 million years ago. They're probably growing on the roof of your house. So we really are surrounded by ancient plants that existed long before we did. So next time you leave your house, look at the incredible diversity of plants that are growing all around you because each and every one of them tells a story. So many plants have been given the name living fossils, and it's actually quite a generic term that refers to plants that haven't changed all that much over long periods of evolutionary and geological time. Scientists, paleobotanists, they look at fossils and these fossils sort of form a, a stack underground, if, if, if you like. And by looking at these features, and it's actually incredible because I have to say I'm a botanist, I'm not a paleobotanist, but I work with people who are. And it's incredible the extraordinary detail with which you can trace back what these plants look like and sort of recreate geological time. And artists as well are able to sort of conjure up these plants back to life by looking at these fossils. So it really is incredible. But there are some plants that have changed very little over vast periods of time. So for example, ginkgo is one that we're quite familiar with that you can see planted along roadsides. They actually grow very well with those sort of conditions. So even with poor air quality. There's something quite majestic about a ginkgo tree and they have these very distinctive, almost fan-like leaves with slightly wavy edges. They're very, very beautiful and they're quite unique in that their nearest living relatives, other gymnosperms, for example, conifers, other plants that our listeners will be very familiar with, they really don't look anything like a ginkgo. So it really is a very unique tree. Some of my favourite ancient plants are lycopods or lycophytes. And these are the most ancient group of vascular plants that are alive today, by which I mean plants that have plumbing in them. So special types of vessels that transport water and nutrients. And these were some of the first plants to have grown roots, stems and leaves, like the plants that we're familiar with today. Now, the ones living today are small, but 350 million years ago, their ancestors would have been towering trees with sort of long finger-like leaves, quite extraordinary looking things. I mean, just imagine peering up into the canopy of a forest of lycopods. There's one particular one that was an absolute goliath. It's called Lepidodendron, and it would have had these broccoli-like branches, a canopy of broccoli, if you will, emerging from an enormous trunk that could grow to over 30 metres high and had a width of about two metres at its base. And it had needle-like leaves that sprouted directly from the trunk in these great green spirals. And when they fell, they would have left diamond-shaped scars along the trunk, which is what paleobotanists have examined and been able to recreate what these incredible plants would have looked like. So for me, the idea of being able to walk through a prehistoric fossil forest, if you will, of lepidodendron is something quite special. 
Another favorite of mine when we're talking about ancient plants, it's got to be the ferns. Now, of course, ferns are very familiar and, and often beautiful plants. They first unfurled in the Devonian period, some 400 million years ago. And the appearance of ferns really sparked a, a period of major change on our planet as these plants rose to dominance. So ferns became one of the most important groups of plants on Earth in the Carboniferous period, about 300 million years ago. And alongside those giant tree-like lycopods that I just mentioned, these plants formed vast green swamps around the world. But today, ferns are one of the largest and most diverse group of plants around. And there are some 10,000 species or so of them growing around the world. Recently, I got back from an expedition in the Philippines, trekking through the rainforests, and I was surrounded by these enormous tree ferns. But there was one fern that really caught my eye. It's called Angiopteris. And it's a sort of tropical fern that really looks prehistoric and it thrives in these sort of warm, wet wildernesses. It was really a sight to behold. It's known actually as the giant fern and it has these sturdy, woody stems with thick roots and these fronds that grow to several metres jutting out from sort of thick, hairy, purple stems. Honestly, it really is <laughs> a fern without compare. And then the conifers. These are living fossils that exist all around us in our parks and gardens. But there is one very special example. So until 1994, there was a type of conifer known only from fossils. And then a living population was actually found in a remote rainforest in the Walemi National Park in Australia. Incredibly, just 150 kilometres from Sydney. Now, to find a plant that was thought to have died out with the dinosaurs so close to human civilization, that really was an extraordinary discovery. Today, the tree is known as the Walemi pine, and it's now grown in Arboreta and botanic gardens all around the world. So a Walemi pine has... I guess it does have a sort of prehistoric look about it. <laughs> it also has the look and feel of a sort of Christmas tree about it. I might be the first botanist to have said that. <laughs> It's a thing of beauty. So we've talked a little bit about ancient plants such as ferns and the gymnosperms, which include conifers, pines and ginkgos and, and plants like that. I haven't mentioned flowering plants, which evolved later than the plants that I've been describing so far. But there are some ancient flowering plants around as well. I'm going to talk briefly about magnolias, which are very special flowers. Um, but I'll start by saying that even though the dinosaurs have been extinct for 66 million years, we have a better idea of what they looked like than we do the first flowers. And this is because although there are fossils of some of these early plants, they were very fragile and they didn't necessarily preserve all that well. But by piecing together evidence from the few fossils that we have found alongside the, the flowering plants that still exist today, scientists have rebuilt an image of what the very first flowers could have looked like and they think that these early blooms may have actually looked rather like a magnolia. Magnolias to me have a sort of artless beauty. There are some which look like sort of white sashes or ribbons tethered to tree branches in the spring. And then there are the showier ones with these flowers almost the size of dinner plates. So today there are 200 or so different species of these very beautiful and ancient plants across the globe, especially in Asia. And fossils show that plants remarkably similar to these alive today. They grew tens of millions of years ago. Another interesting fact is that actually seeds collected from 2,000-year-old tombs have been grown successfully, which is pretty incredible in itself. But just briefly returning to the magnolia flower, 
These were pollinated by beetles, and that's why the flowers have these very tough parts in them to avoid damage from these cumbersome beetles, which are a little bit less dainty, uh, let's say, than, than pollinating bees. There was a programme, it was probably 15 or 20 years ago now, I think it was called something like Walking with Dinosaurs or something like that, and it was one of the first impressive CGI documentaries that brought dinosaurs to life. And I was... <laughs> One of the viewers, there might be more, who was perhaps slightly less intrigued by the dinosaurs as I was by the vegetation that they were romping on and roaming amongst. There's something really special to me as, as a botanist to think about what our green planet looked like hundreds of millions of years ago. The other thing that I think is extraordinary is our sort of concept of time and what constitutes a long period of time. When we think of eons and geological and evolutionary time, it's really actually quite difficult to conceptualise the vastness of that. And we're surrounded by plants that have been around for hundreds of millions of years, and I think that's really quite special. Chris Thorogood. It was great to hear about his love for ferns, and I'm really jealous of his experiences in the Philippines and seeing all these incredible tropical plants. If you'd like to get started with ferns in your own garden, our very own James Lawrence from the RHS advisory team is the man to ask. With around 100 different ferns in his own back garden, he certainly knows his fronds from his flowers. Speaking outside Hilltop Science Centre at RHS Garden Wisley, we caught up with him, alongside colleagues Nicky Barker and Julie Henderson, who grilled him on his obsession. I am a self-confessed fern collector, and I do have over 100 different species in, within my garden, which is a mainly shaded, uh, so the conditions are, are, are good for growing ferns. And actually one side of my garden is damp shade and the other side is dry shade, so it does give me the ability to have a wide variety. Uh, I'm joined here with uh, Nikki Barker, Senior Advisor, and Julie Henderson, who uh, are going to try and wean me out of my obsession. I have known James for a few years and when I first met him and he confessed his fern addiction to me, I was quite shocked, I have to say, and I really thought, oh no. But over the years, he has brought me round. I, I can kind of see where he's coming from now and he's definitely introduced me to some quite interesting uses for ferns over the years. And there was only 60 or 70 in those days, so it, yeah. it, it, has, it has got worse. I so. have failed to improve your addiction. You have just got worse, yes. So, James, you're a fern expert. You've been growing them for years. What about someone that hasn't grown ferns before and wants to introduce some in their garden? What would you recommend? Firstly, the great thing is that ferns are normally generally very you know, hardy if you go for groups such as the Dryopteris genus. Yeah, there are tender ferns which are often sold as house plants and if you're going to grow any of them outside you do need to give them winter protection. So the first thing I would say is go for a, a well-established hardy variety. A genus like Dryopteris or Polystichum are always a good bet. There's one called Dryopteris atrata which is, uh, in my opinion, you know, it's very difficult to go wrong with that because even if you plant it in a situation where it gets a, a too much sun, it can still cope. So there are some ferns that, that will tolerate more sunlight than most other ferns, which are sort of renowned for being sort of shady or semi-shade plants. So Dryopteris atrata would be a good one. And the Asplenium, Asplenium scolopendrum, 
which is, it looks a bit different in the sense that it's got what we call an entire leaf, so it doesn't have those finely divided parts of the leaf, so it is kind of more entire, so it does look different. So the contrast between that kind of leaf and then a, a divided fern leaf is, is quite good because you've got some contrast. But there really are so many, and a lot of garden centres, including the one here at Wisley, have got a really wide selection, and almost all of the hardy ferns require you know, minimal maintenance. You just need to water them in well so they get established in the first year. You know, Ideally, some shade or partial shade, and they will go on rewarding you year after year. I have to say, James did introduce me to a really good idea on my patio. I now have a splenium yeah. growing in the gravel yeah. bits, which, when you first suggested it to me, I don't know if you remember, about three years ago, I did nod and go, oh, that's a lovely idea, thinking, what? But it's brilliant, works really well. Yes, I, I am rather used to you just uh, classifying <laughs> me there, but, but uh, yes, it, it, in a way, you, you are kind of replicating how some of these plants would grow in a wild environment but you're bringing that into a cultivated idea so the, the idea of growing them between paving slabs or you know that you may well see those growing at the sides of, of kind of rocky outcrops and, mm. and, and things like that so it is just a case of kind of replicating some of those do you have a favorite fern or type oh, of fern oh my goodness James? that's a really difficult question and I mean there are there are so many that I like for different reasons when you ask people generally what plants you know if they have favorite plants and people will often say well I have favorite plants for different times of the year and it can be a little bit like that with ferns although people will say to me well but they're, they're, they're either green all year round the evergreen types or the deciduous ones that die back but there are some really nice ones out there that I do have a, a sort of extra sort of place for and there is a dryopteris called dryopteris wallichiana which is a particularly nice one, uh, and one called Goldiana. And they've both got slightly hairy black stems, which give them that extra bit of interest. Um, but some of the deciduous ferns I love simply for that whole unfurling of the fern frond. I love so, that. That's my favourite So it's favorite great bit. to have the, some evergreen ones there, again, you know, for some structure and some colour in the winter. But the deciduous ones that all of a sudden start waking up, and it's around April and May when they're going to really start unfurling, and some of the larger ones, like the ostrich fern, Matukia, you know, that can be quite dramatic because it can, it can reach, an established one can reach, you know, a good metre and a half, two metres in a relatively short time from unfurling. So that can be quite dramatic. And then you've got some, uh, the painted lady ferns, which have got kind of a bit more colour to the foliage. So um, Athrium. So, yeah, it, it's partly the way they unfurl and that whole kind of characteristic of that curled frond is quite quite a nice kind of shape and and I quite kind of quite like watching that and I, and I will go out into the garden if not every day every other day and just see how much further it's got and then of course the beauty is what you plant around them to complement them because no garden is going to ever set the plants off if you've just got one plant group within it so you know having other woodland type plants you know having spring bulbs that are perhaps giving you some interest just before the ferns are unfurling. Wooden um, enemies look good with ferns, don't they? Good. We've got Ep epimediums. Epimediums yeah. I've got. Um, even some, some hookahs if you want some splashes mm. of colour. And actually some hookahs, some of the smaller hookahs in baskets with ferns can be quite a nice combination because if they're in baskets the underside of a hookah leaf is often very brightly coloured and people never normally see that because mm. they're normally low on, mm. on the ground. It's a bit like not seeing the inside of a hellebore flower but if it's planted up on a bank or higher up 
you've got a completely different view. And what about Tiarellas, actually? Mm. They would look... Yeah, because they've got that tiarellas. slightly pink I have marking. got a few Tiarellas, and I would like more Tiarellas, but mm. I am running out of space, uh, and I'll blame that on the ferns. So here we go. I wasn't a fern fan, but then I met James, and he is my boss, so now I have to be. I do love ferns as well. Always love ferns. Thanks to James Lawrence alongside Nikki Barker and Julie Henderson from the RHS advisory team. And I know there's lots and lots of names that have been mentioned, but don't worry, we will put them in the show notes. One plant that James mentioned that I particularly love is Dryopteris wallichiana. Such a classy fern. It has these amazing yellowy, limey green fronds with these beautiful black midribs. It's really, really classy. Our final guest today is here to give some advice about different kinds of ancient plants, ones that we've left neglected at home. Sarah Gerard-Jones is a specialist in reviving houseplants others have left to waste. With hundreds of thousands of people following her journey online, she's become a great source for tips and inspiration and is about to release her debut book, The Plant Rescuer, the book your houseplants want you to read. How did I become a plant rescuer? Well, it was by accident that I was going to collect some paint from a DIY shop and I was wandering around the store and I saw members of staff with a bin bag in the houseplant area throwing away orchids that had stopped flowering. And it kind of stopped me in my tracks and I just thought how sad it was that these plants were being thrown away just because they no longer were flowering and looked perfect. So I went over and I asked if I could take them home. And instead of coming home with a pot of paint, I came home with a car full of orchids that had stopped flowering. That's really how this whole journey began. And from that moment, I became a little bit obsessed with trying to save as many plants as I could before they got thrown away. So my house quickly became full with about 200 plants and I'd find them in all sorts of different places, petrol stations, supermarkets, but then I've also unbelievably come across them discarded in bins. <laughs> I've literally been bin diving plants. And I, I really love, in old plants, seeing what adaptations they've made in order to survive, and I think they should be appreciated. They've got a character and a history, and you just don't get that from a new plant. So often I found that it was simple things that were helping them recover, and that was really rewarding. And I wanted to document that and I decided to start an Instagram account to document the recovery of these plants. So I would take a picture of before, and then I would document along the way uh, until it recovered. And I think that connected with some people and the account started to grow. And that culminated in being approached by publishing houses to write a book about my journey and about rescuing plants. And that's how my um, hobby, let's say, turned into this career. My book is a guide to how to keep your house plants alive and what to do when things aren't going 
to plan. And my aim in writing this book is to encourage people to take time to learn about their plants' needs and recognise the signs that might suggest that they're unhappy. I think lots of people confess to having a black thumb when it comes to growing plants and being a serial plant killer, but everyone can have healthy, happy houseplants if they are just willing to take the time to learn about their plants' needs. The first section of my book helps you understand the different light zones in your home. I think it's often misunderstood what low light means, what moderate light means, and what bright light means, and indirect and direct light. So I go into great detail about how you can work out what type of light is coming in through your particular window. So an example of a plant you would place in a low light area of your home could be something like a philodendron imperial green. They are really quite hardy plants that seem to throw out leaves regardless of how much light they're receiving. Something for a moderate amount of light could be something like a caladium, which can give you a nice pop of colour. And for bright light, I don't know if you've ever tried lithops, but they're really fascinating little plants. They are like little bums, little upturned bums. <laughs> Two little fleshy leaves. They're a succulent plant. I suggest that people get some. <laughs> so one common houseplant problem is something called stretching or elongating. And this is when the leaves on the stem become spaced out further apart along the stem. And it's usually because your plant isn't getting enough light. So in this case, it's very simple. What you would do is find a brighter spot for your plant. An important thing to understand about rescuing plants is sometimes the plant itself might die. But if you save a cutting and propagate that, the plant can live on. So there is a big section in my book about how to propagate plants, and that's a way of saving them too. It's also a really fun way of growing your collection. You can pass propagations on to friends, to family. The most interesting propagation that I've done is with a rhizome of a rabbit's foot fern. I don't know if you can picture a rabbit's foot fern. They're really furry, tarantula-like rhizomes that creep over the edge of the pot. And actually, if you snip one of those rhizomes off, or legs off, and place that in soil, in contact with soil, that will grow a whole new plant. And that was a really interesting thing for me to experiment with. I didn't realise that, that that would work, and that was a really exciting experiment for me. So there's lots of ways to experiment with propagation. Lots of plants do propagate in many different ways, not just one way. So it might propagate from the stem as well as the leaf. So I've gone into great detail about trying propagation. The love I have for old plants is something I'm trying to get across in my book as well. And, and that's a feature that I regularly run on my Instagram is just to encourage people that with a little understanding that their plant can live for decades and even become an heirloom, which can be passed on to other members of the family and become like a living memorial. I have got a lot of old plants here. Um, the oldest is probably 30 years old, which is a Christmas cactus, which I found on Facebook Marketplace. And when I went to pick it up, it was from someone who died 
So they were clearing out their house and I mean that just made me really emotional and so that plant is really special to me because that the person who passed away who I never knew had cared for that plant for so many years and it's an honour for me to have it now and keep it alive. To me it's so beautiful because it drapes downwards, it's like a waterfall of leaves. It's not something you're ever going to find on the shop shelves and to me that's everything. And I just want to encourage people that plants have to acclimatise to your home and they will go through a period of transition where they don't maybe look as wonderful as they once did. But if you persevere and if you nurture your plant through these different stages it's going to go through and don't give up, then you too could have one of these amazing, beautiful, interesting looking plants that nobody else has. Sarah Gerard-Jones. Her book is out on the 28th of April and Sarah will be at the RHS Chelsea Flower Show running plant clinics at the Houseplant Studio. I really like her tip about taking cuttings so that you have spare plants if your other plant dies or you can share it with friends. The more we can grow and share plants, the better. So before I go, here's a quick tip for gardening this week. Sow seeds. Now is absolutely perfect seed sowing time. The soil has warmed up so you can sow lots of stuff direct in the garden. It's the greenest way to grow really because you don't have to use plastic pots, you don't have to use any compost which might have peat in it. So you can sow hardy annuals, you can sow wildflower seed, you can sow herbs, you can sow most vegetables, most hardy vegetables, sow them direct into the ground over the next week or two. Well that's it for today. Hopefully this episode has left you looking at old plants in a new light. Until next time, from me, Gareth Richards, happy gardening! I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on and I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step, and you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer, or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days, plus reduced-rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.